Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still and always will be. I think I'm comfortable saying that. The only horror podcast that talks about movies with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. As always, I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. I am joined. Now, so a quick note for folks. We record with video on because it's really good for chemistry and dynamics with us and our guests. Obviously, you don't get to see that with podcasts, but uh, my boy Donato here is rocking the Con Air Nick Cage uh, like swipey glitter pillow in the background, which is really, I feel like I, I it's going to throw me off the entire episode. So I'm sort of bummed that you have that there, Donato. I'm still in the process of finding places for everything in the new apartment. Like everything looks good at this point. I've hung up my vinyl shelves. I've got everything in a workable order. Like Chucky has his place where he's just staring at me as I record now. But uh, yeah, a few things like sequin pillows with Nick Cage's face on them haven't found their way to their home yet. Are you in the, I know that you're kind of, like you said, still setting up, but because you do the live stream with Perry, are you working on your like little studio slash visual background area for when you're on video? I'm trying to. The only problem is the way that we have separated. So I moved into a townhouse that has three floors. Middle is communal floor. Bottom is my floor. Top is somebody else's. And I don't get great Wi-Fi down where I am for some reason. So mm-hmm. I have to figure out, I think we talked about it when uh, Cargill was on the podcast. I got to get those extenders. I got to figure out my situation. Because right now I just do it on my bar in the communal area. So like best Wi-Fi, best everything. I, I do want to get my little section though with all my nice little, I don't know, I want to hang some posters up maybe with my quotes on them because I have an ego. Why not? Well, Donato, if you're slightly uncomfortable in your recording environment, that just means I'm going to have to work extra hard to make this a good episode. But you know what our secret weapon is for this episode? It's not about us. We've got a great guest. Yeah. When it's on our backs, uh, we don't don't need that. There's enough straight white mats in the horror community. You don't have to give a shit about our opinions. It's about other people's opinions, let's be honest. And with that said, as the introduction to the guest this week, I would like to bring in uh, someone I followed for a very long time. Someone who's written about horror remakes as well. So there's a kinship in in that article writing. Uh, Yeah, so it's going to be Kim Morrison from Ghouls Magazine and just a general horror entertainment journalist. Kim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited. (laughs) Kim, I have to say, um, anytime that I get the opportunity to connect with somebody that writes for Ghouls, it's really exciting for me because I feel like that's become, you know, on our best days, I would hope that Certified Forgotten is one of those sites where if somebody sees that you've written for it, you're like, oh, that's a good like that's a good byline. This person knows what they're talking about. And for me, Ghouls is definitely every writer that I admire and follow that writes specifically within horror, a lot of horror in particular, writes for Ghouls. So then I was like, oh, we're going to get Kim on the show. And I was like, yes, we got that <laughs> Ghouls credibility. I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's an amazing site to be part of. I was very lucky to be sort of asked to be in it when they first kicked off. And um, I now sort of manage all their social media stuff as well. So it's it's a lot of fun. And yeah, everyone who writes for it's amazing. Our group chat is absolute chaos, but <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And I've made a lot of pals through it. So it's, it's nice. That's great to hear. Well, we always start with our guests by kind of talking about the the early days of horror. And you know, sometimes we have folks on the podcast that I feel like I followed forever. I've been connected to on social media forever, and I'm kind of like passively aware of what they've been doing. But I, I you know, I don't think I've ever had an opportunity to meet you in person, and we certainly haven't had an opportunity um, to record a podcast yet. So I'm personally really excited to kind of hear about your horror journey so I can start putting some backstory to the person that I see tweeting and sharing stuff online. So 
Kim, let's talk about kind of the early days of, of you as a horror fan. What were your origins? That first scary movie, that first scary book, the thing that made you think, hold on, this is for me. I feel like um, my mom and dad are both massive horror fans. So uh, there was a lot of stuff like in the house when I was growing up. I have uh, distinct memories of like staring at the back of the VHS cover of The Lost Boys, like that picture of Kiefer Sutherland, like all vamped out and being like, oh my God, I really want to watch this. But I think my first um, stuff was, uh, which I feel like it probably is for a lot of people my age, but it was the mini series of Stephen King's It. Um, mm. My parents had that taped off the television um, and it was so long, so long that I didn't realize until I got it on DVD years later that I had never seen like the last 15 minutes because the VHS was only like three hours long and with all the like adverts and everything all the way through it, I hadn't actually seen the whole chunk of like Audra and Bill on the bike or anything. Um, so yeah, I watched that when I was like, I'm not sure, maybe like seven or eight, I think probably. I have an eight-year-old daughter just now, so I'm I'm slightly aware of how <laughs> probably not the best idea that that was. But um my mom and dad were very good at like um allowing me to watch horror, but sort of like vetoing it first. I wasn't allowed to watch any like slashers. I remember being like desperate to watch Freddy Krueger and um like Halloween and then things, and they weren't super keen on that. But I do remember getting to watch like Poltergeist and The Shining and things where I was a bit older, like the stuff that um they thought were like kind of hotter classics but that I wasn't um gonna be too traumatized watching because there was one night where my mom was out and my dad was babysitting me and he let me watch like the 80s remake of the blob and mm. um we got to the bit where the person's like getting like consumed in the phone box and I had I had to leave I was like no that's too much and then I had like nightmares about <laughs> a week so I think it was good to do it um in that way and then I think books as well it was kind of Stephen King I remember being like desperate to read it which is obviously a very chunky book um and as a like 10 year old or however I was when I first attempted it I got through that first sort of chunk um at the beginning about four or five times when I actually managed to read it um the whole way through but um yeah it was just it was it it was due to having quite nice horror loving parents and them sort of helping me source things my dad used to have um like satellite tv when we didn't have it in my house so he used to like tape me like he taped scream and things and he'd bring it out and like give it to me because like we didn't have like um sky in my house until like I was in high school so it was basically just what's on these five terrestrial channels that we have and that was the only access I kind of had so my mum and dad were quite good at um yeah kind of shipping horror into the house for me so that I could watch all the good stuff I know that um we don't we don't always get a, a chance to talk about uh parenting uh, on the podcast but mm -hmm. since you raise or since you mentioned the fact that you're raising an eight-year-old daughter mm -hmm. Thinking back to your own origins with horror, how are you approaching in the year 2023 having somebody that that probably, if this is around and about for you, somebody who's expressing interest, um, maybe curiosity about the kind of movies and books that you're watching, how are you approaching that as a parent and starting to think about what a horror genre could look like for, for your kid? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to <laughs> like not traumatize her in early age. I obviously have a lot of horror stuff like around about my house. She's obsessed with Pennywise, like the newer version, which mm. is obviously I wouldn't let her see that one for a while because that's a bit more traumatic than the nineties version. And she's uh, she was begging me the other day to watch Friday the Thirteenth because I've got like a Jason plush, and she's like, "Please," I was like, "No." But what we're trying to do is sort of like go through all the more kind of family friendly stuff. Uh, we've been watching like the Ghostbusters films and like Beetlejuice. Um, and we're sort of working up to things maybe like Jaws and things that are a bit actual scarier but not like super violent or anything um she used to ask to watch like the Goosebumps TV series on Netflix when it was on over here she got a bit freaked out of that uh, when she was a wee bit younger but she's started kind of showing interest again so I'm trying to like 
nurture it in her, I guess, but not like put her off it by like showing her stuff too young. Because yeah. I think when I was young, I liked being scared. Um, if some like watching the blob, it terrified me, and I had to not watch the end. But it made me want to go back and like watch stuff. Whereas I think she's a bit like she gets scared and then she kind of goes off stuff a bit. So it's trying to just like find the things that she enjoys, and then uh, yeah, she wants um. I have a figure of creature from the Black Lagoon. She noticed that the other day and was like, is that a film? And I was like, yes, it is. I have a whole box set. So we watched like three of those films in a row. She really liked those. And I thought that was quite cool because that's like a a more like a better horror history introduction, I think, than like I had going back to kind of like the vintage stuff as well. And I do have a lot of those kind of older ones on DVD and things that are the rating on them is like 12 or like PG or whatever. So mm-hmm. I can hopefully show them to her without scaring her too much. So yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to kind of follow the same kind of path that my, um, my mum did off just kind of, um, showing her stuff that feels suitable, but she does like watching videos on YouTube of people playing like five nights at Freddy's and other horror games that I don't really know <laughs> what they are and try to like keep an eye on her um, when she's watching stuff so that she doesn't freak herself out um, but she has quite a good knowledge of stuff she plays um Roblox and there's a lot of like kind of homemade horror characters in there and she's like oh that's the guy from Scream and that's Chucky and I'm like yes you're well done but you won't see those films <laughs> until you're at least like double digits <laughs> well and it, like that's the importance of gateway horror too and I think we forget about that sometimes as more veteran mm-hmm. horror fans and you know we mm-hmm. watch something and it's like oh, it's not as scary as I want it to be, or it's not as this, not as that. Uh, thinking, like, especially of something I just watched, like Cobwebs or something like The Boogeyman. Like, that's a little mm-hmm. more higher-level gateway, don't get me wrong. Yeah. The scares are there. But then, you know, you, you drop another level, and there is something so important about giving a newer horror fan the right entryway, because mm-hmm. I got the reverse. I did <laughs> not have a horror-loving family. I did not have any kind of introduction, any kind of history or anything like that. So... Everything was going about it at my pace to say, and especially early on in my life, I had, I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, a lot, a lot. So like, I won't get into it that much, but definitely anxious kid, definitely afraid of everything. And instead of starting small and building myself up with horror, I was just like a kid who really didn't know that horror existed as deeply as it does. And I would just see a trailer for, again, Bride of Chucky, which we know (laughs) is the funny comedy and then like even seed a little bit again, the more crazy comedy aspect of it. And I would see like a trailer and it would just like petrify me. So like not having the right introduction, not having the right headspace, I was like, nope. And that put me off hard. Like that mm-hmm. put me off yeah. it for years. So like it's, I'm, I'm sure for a parent, it's doubly as hard because again, like you're trying to set them up for success and you're trying to set them up. So like, do you, well, actually like going off of that, like, are you more aware of like gateway horror? Yeah, I think um, we've been trying to like just have a look at the the ones that are kind of more suitable for her. I guess when I was little, like I said, I just kind of watched whatever there was, like whatever I could get my my hands on. It's it's much easier to kind of get everything on streaming now. So it's trying to like make the yeah make the effort to find that kind of stuff and show it. Like we just watched Gremlins as well, which I think is a fifteen and she's only eight, so it's maybe not. <laughs> but it's still it was it was on the TV in the daytime, so I think they maybe cut out like the blender it's fine, scene. Yeah, if it's stuff. on the TV yeah. in the daytime, it's fair game. It wasn't it wasn't um, super violent. Um, so yeah, it's just trying to like um, like I was a massive and still am. If um, you could see my living room, a massive Nightmare Before Christmas fan, so I like watched that a lot as a kid. So um, yeah, things like 
she watched that young she watched a lot of scooby-doo when she was little like that was the trying to just introduce her to all the monsters and it's also a good argument for look the monsters are very rarely real they're, they're usually just like a guy in a mask like um trying to explain that to her about when we watch uh stuff i'm like yeah no it's just an actor and they're just dressed up like it's not a real thing so um i'm hoping that's given her a good understanding of it but yeah i think she's uh, there's definitely a lot more things now um things like uh the goosebumps films and um i know we had like the tv series when i was a kid and things but sort of yeah just being able to build her up with that i guess knowledge of all the things that could exist within the monstery horrory world uh not necessarily in the most terrifying way possible and then we'll build her up to that one one following question on that what's the one movie that you can't wait to show your child mm. but like you know you can't yet but like what's the mm. one that you can't wait to get to i mean i have really um I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time when I was 12. And I only remember this because it got like unbanned from being shown on TV over here. So Channel 4 um, showed it here at like 12 o'clock at night. And I remember arguing with my mum. I was like, you need to let me watch this. This is like a cultural phenomenon. You can't. And I had no, I had no knowledge what it was about, apart from obviously the titles, kind of self-explanatory. But I'd never like really had any um, exposure to it apart from a picture of Leatherface. And I remember watching that and being absolutely terrified and like hiding under my covers. And for me, that was like an amazing horror experience. So um, something like that, that or like the original Black Christmas, that like genuinely scared mm. the absolute shit out of me the first time I watched it. I can't wait to show her stuff like that when I feel like she's able to properly get that like kind of fear like huddles in the dark with the lights off kind of scary reaction so yeah I think stuff like Texas Chainsaw is kind of the one that pops to me just because it, it absolutely terrified me but like Halloween's my favorite like slasher ever so I guess that's pretty high up as well uh, in what I would like to to show her but yeah <laughs> I mean I don't know if it helps or hurts but I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time at 37 and that movie <laughs> fucked me up like two years ago if like it just watching it in the middle of the day in my house i it's it is a deeply unsettling and uncomfortable film so i mean i guess one takeaway could be there's no good age to watch it so have her watch it now i guess like there is no good time so she might as well she's age she's ready i know god yeah that's been yeah i'm I'm sure she'll be a lot older because that one is obviously um it's not super gory, but there's a lot of implied gore and very and very yeah. scary. But I just it was just such a a very memorable experience um, of how uh, terrifying that was, and I I hope that she comes to enjoy the fear eventually, and then we'll yeah have fun with with films like that when she gets to watch them. Well, when thinking about your own journey again, um, getting out of this nexus, you know, not being traumatized like Donato, still having space to be like, yep, I'm still a horror fan. When did you start to approach writing about film? Was that something that you were kind of doing on your own, your own website, your own blog, something like that? Was it something that, that you know, through schooling it had an opportunity? I'm always curious when people make that leap between I really enjoy consuming this to like, I actually want to put some stuff down somewhere about what I think about it. You know, weirdly, it wasn't until... Um... I want to say it was maybe like 2018, 17. It wasn't that long ago, actually, um, which is weird because um, I did do a lot of like blogging and things. I used to have like a craft blog. So I did a lot of writing kind of on the side. Um, and when I was in university, I did like public relations, but I did like a kind of side course about um, it was like journalism in media, basically. And the only A I ever got on an essay was one I wrote about representations of like women news 
um, casters in horror films. So I wrote about Scream and The Howling and To Die For. And that was the only A I ever got. So that really should have been like an indication that if you yeah. write about something you're actually interested in, you might get like a better result with it. But um, I, my boyfriend actually, um, Phil, he used to run this site um, with his friend Kieran, who I believe Matt knows, um, called That's Not Current. And um, I had kind of pitched to them, they were looking for writers and I had said, oh, I've kind of been thinking about writing about like horror remakes and their originals because um, I seem to love a lot of terrible remakes that people <laughs> don't like. So I was like, I would like to talk about that. Um, and they were like, yeah, no, come write for us. Um, so I wrote for them for um, a couple of years and I, they were luck- I was lucky enough that they let me just kind of do a, a few um, lists and things. And one of which was my like top horrible ankle injuries which is like my thing that I look for in every horror film like just grotesque um ankle injuries um mainly due to the can I stop you there I have to ask I have to ask why ankle injuries that's such a specific thing I don't know it's just um when I it was because of House of Wax like the remake when Jared Padalecki gets his Achilles tendon snipped and then also uh, Paris Hilton gets like a knife through the back of her heel which is kind of ankle adjacent and then also the guy in Hostel getting his um Achilles tendon slashed um they were just like I was like these are the ones that really get to me like I'm not a a big gore lover in general but something about ankle injuries that really gives me like the ick um so I started looking out for them and (laughs) there's tons of really horrible ones with either yeah just people getting like their foot smashed in or Achilles tendons or or things like that so yeah that was one of the first like um kind of very specific lists that I wrote um and now apparently like everyone everyone at ghouls is just like you're just the queen of strange lists and i was like i have a trello board that is just like every strange thing i see in a horror film and if i get enough for a list i'm like right i'm gonna write about that but um yeah i i I wrote for them for a few years they um sadly sort of like stopped functioning so i started my own blog which is called little red horror and i sort of moved a lot of my strange lists and things to there but there when ghouls got started which i think was was it two years ago now um they sort of put a call out on Twitter because I am um, Zoe who runs Girls. Um, I sort of I had written for her personal site a few times. I've done some reviews and things, and I sort of just knew her through like uh, a horrorness on Twitter. She put out a call being like, "Does anyone know any cool like um like female or non-binary like horror writers?" And like quite a few people nominated me, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It's like <laughs> like you just assume that no one ever reads your stuff, so it's nice to know that people are reading it. And kind of thought, so yeah, um, Zoe kind of reached out to me when we first when they first started, and um, so I write for them quite regularly. I do my Mother of Fears um, column, which is on like representations of mothers in horror um, from different kind of angles, and then also yeah, try and keep up the <laughs> the bananas list, right in um, and do some reviews and stuff. Um, and yeah, mainly just sort of write for my own blog. But yeah, it was it was. I'm surprised it kind of took me so long, and I think that's what um, my boyfriend kind of said to me. He was like, "Why aren't you writing about this? Like, this is the thing that you love and you want to like talk about all the time. Like, it makes sense to kind of focused on that. I'm a, I used to be a copywriter in my day job. I do more like social media stuff now, but it was like all the bits were there. I just never sort of really put them together. Um, so yeah, it's been amazing. It's just, it's so nice to just, um, it's really helped me like connect with loads of like, like-minded people and also just sort of get into, yeah, write about all these, these films that you, you love. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Any episode we can reference Kieran is a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Admit that little uh, chaos demon. I'm, I keep trying to get him on the podcast, and like he's like, "All right, what about this like micro budget movie that no one's?" I'm just like, "Dude, all right, like give me something a little more, bud. Like, come on." Yeah, me and him have very conflicting horror opinions. I the, like the first time I came around to my boyfriend's house before he was my boyfriend. Me and Keaton were just sitting arguing about um, which Fright Night was better, like the original or the remake. And he was very like the remake's better, and I was like, "I am walking out of this house." Like I don't. <laughs> Listen, Kieran has Kieran has terrible <laughs> opinions, but that is one I will back him on. You have a, you have you have another fight brewing on this podcast. It's fine. I've I've got as a few years later, I've gotten over it. That's okay. What, what I was going to say, Donato, from what I've heard, we can't invite Kieran on the podcast because it'll end up being three hours long, and it'll be your edit, and you'll be miserable about it, right? Yeah. R.I.P. Silent Night, Deadly Night, the podcast dedicated to Christmas horror fucking commentary but i yeah he's he'll never be allowed on the podcast because he will bring up just to needle me that the remake of black Fr- uh black christmas is better than the original and i will go off i will not be able to stop <laughs> i have a soft spot for that one we can we can we can all lose respect for each other in real time if we need to but i'm but i think it's safe to say everybody has has their favorites on, on those couple um i want to ask too a little uh Kim, if you, if you want to talk a little bit about being a, a horror writer, um, a horror journalist, and a member of the community from Edinburgh, because I think that there are, you know, when we think in the States about the places where horror congregates, it's the usual, it's like LA and, and New York, right? So there are these kind of global and regional hubs where it's really easy to be a horror fan and gain access to a community, go to events, go to screenings, all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious about what your experience has been as somebody in the industry that's in a place that I don't think of necessarily as getting, you know, a lot of attention, certainly when it comes to releases, but also being uh, a little bit behind, you know, the Hollywood release cycle as well. How, how do you navigate that as, as a horror journalist? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> like even a lot of the ghouls writers even are like based down in London or the South of England. So even like, um, stuff that can come through from there, like getting to go to press screenings and stuff. There's not always the the opportunity. Um, it's kind of cool because, well, we we used to have the Edinburgh Film Festival. I don't know, it's kind of gone a bit under this year. I don't know what's happening, but that was nice to have it close to like, the Glasgow Film Festival and then the Glasgow version of Fright Fest. Um, Glasgow's quite close to Edinburgh. It's only like 45 minutes away. So that it was quite nice from that kind of angle. But yeah, no, it can be um, a challenge. I guess it's, you're quite lucky if you can get... Um, screeners through to stuff but things like even like um pearl i don't even know if pearl actually came out in the cinema like i, I couldn't get it in a local cinema it took months there was a there's a huge difference between when it came in america versus when it came in the uk but i think it only came out in like four or five cinemas and none of them were near me and i yeah i live very close to edinburgh and glasgow so you would, or there was no good times there was like one show in or things so it mm-hmm. feels strange because you do think like it there wouldn't be such a disconnect i guess between stuff like that um and it still feels like there is a bit um and yeah even sort of being a couple of weeks behind on films like i think talk to me came out in america this week maybe um <laughs> one of someone i followed twitter was going absolutely nuts because uh, she's been seeing spoilers for it already and um, which has happened to like a few things so i think being very online and trying to navigate that sort of disconnect can be um a bit of a a challenge and um, try to like not get stuff spoiled for yourself but um yeah, it would be nicer to even just live a lot closer to a lot of people. You, yeah, you just feel like you don't have a lot of opportunities. I have a few um, pals who live sort of close by who do like podcasts and stuff. It's nice to do stuff with them in person. Like we've gone to like film festivals and stuff um, together. But um, yeah, even just being in Scotland, like a lot of the big 
horror festivals down through here or even like down in the south of England and stuff, which can be mm-hmm. a challenge, especially me with a, a child and everything to try and like get to to organize the time. So it does it does feel like a bit a bit disconnected. Like um it would be uh, a bit easier if I lived somewhere else. But then again, a lot of the films I write about are um tend to looking back on kind of older ones and, and things as well. Um I don't do as many reviews as other people. I tend to do more like lists and kind of retrospectives and things as so um it's sort of fine on that account. Um it, but yeah, it can be a bit um a bit annoying sometimes, but um I'm hoping it'll get a bit better. But it's nice that uh kind of how stuff how like compared to like a few years ago even just how kind of fast stuff goes to streaming and things these days even the ability to like rent stuff um like through amazon and things does make it a, a bit easier you're not having to wait like as long for stuff to get like a, a physical release or whatever so that makes it a bit a bit easier um in that respect but i would love to live a bit it'd be nice to just even live closer to like the rest of the ghouls <laughs> it would be yeah. a nice thing to sort of have that like um a bit more of a community um, around about you i think that's why i am on like twitter and things so much because they talk to everyone like in different countries different parts of the world and sort of make up the community that way yeah it's always i mean you know, you think about, oh, well, I, I live in Austin, Texas, so that's a major city in the United States, a major city in Texas. But, you know, if I want to go see Cobweb, which is opening this weekend, it's only playing in a movie theater that's about 40 minutes away. Yeah. So what I get what I get to do is the same thing. I like I texted Donato and I was like, hey, this is 40 minutes away. Is this worth a drive? And he was like, for you, probably. And because of <laughs> it's a darker movie, so you're definitely going to want to see it on a big screen, yada, yada. But it's just sort of like we think of film and I think a lot of people outside of the film industry think this is sort of like this, like everybody ver- like gets to see it. And by the time a, a movie is hit, you know, theaters, everybody's had an opportunity. But it's always fun to, to talk to people, especially that are, you know, that are sort of writing for the types of publications that, that we run and that we frequent as writers ourselves, because I feel like y'all really understand those challenges and how, you know, horror movies in particular seem to live in this area, like blockbusters play in movie theaters, you know, smaller films go direct to video. Horror is always a crapshoot. They may play in some <laughs> theaters and they may play direct to video, go streaming. Mm-hmm. They may get a, you know, international release or they may play in just New York and LA for a hot minute. And so I feel like horror is this one area where we're all just sort of like, it, what is it? Can we, is it going to, no? Okay. Am I? Okay, fine. Tell me if I can, because I'd love to see this somewhere. I do remember it was it was years ago. It's a very old example, but when Hatchet, like the first Hatchet came out, um, I remember seeing trailers for it, and I was so excited. And it was literally playing at one cinema that's maybe like forty five minutes drive away, and it was playing. There was like one showing on like a Monday night, and it was like eleven o'clock at night, and I had to like talk a bunch of pals. That I was like, "You need to go and see this. It looks amazing!" <laughs> like driving them away across to like the other side of town to go and see this like random. And I mean, it was it was amazing. I'm very glad I went to see it in the cinema. But yeah, it's just that kind of. I guess I feel like it's it's maybe not a, a fair thing to put on us, but I think maybe horror fans are so like into the genre that they are willing to like make that little bit of extra effort where possible to go and see stuff but they should just <laughs> give stuff like wider releases um because yeah there's a lot of um good stuff that i don't know yeah you don't always get the chance it kind of slips out the cinema really quickly and then you miss it and then when you do see it you're like oh man that would have been amazing to see it on the big screen yeah it's always so curious because like horror is one of the most dependable genres in theaters i mean we saw that even with something as silly as winnie the pooh blood and honey which is a <laughs> terrible movie but if you put a movie about a killer Winnie the Pooh in theaters, like, yeah, horror fans are going to come out just mm-hmm. for the curiosity aspect alone. And I think that is something that we 
as you know, people very invested in the genre and who write about it and cover it, like we're seeing it a little more because we do know all those tiny micro budget films and low budget horror films out there mm-hmm. worth watching. Like, you know, they're never going to get the theatrical representation they deserve. So like, it, it, it's that balancing act of like, everything can't go. We know that. But at the same time, you know, something like Pearl, again, just mentioning that uh, for like for you, obviously, or just certain horror movies that go straight to VOD over here. It's becoming like, it's becoming very odd, uh, especially with the window being so decreased right now. And I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, if that window is ever going to go back up, but you know, hey, you don't have to see Halloween kills in theaters because it'll be on Paramount Plus or whatever, whatever streaming service it goes to in 40 days, 45 days. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's it's becoming like there's less incentive to put things in theaters in a way, but also at the mm-hmm. same time, like you need to put them in theaters. Like that's where the money's yeah. made. Well, last question for you then, Kim, and then we got to get to the, we have to get to the movie that you, you brought for us today. <laughs> um, I want to ask is some so as somebody that's working for Ghouls Magazine, you know, a, a labor of love, a, a growing business, right? Like a growing community, both online and off. We're hearing a lot, especially because we're recording this on Barbenheimer weekend. We're hearing a lot of conversations about the state of the film industry, the state of film criticism, the state of film fandom. We're having all of the strike conversations about influencers versus journalists and all those kind of lines. And so especially when when folks are, are working so specifically to grow one thing, you know, we have conversations with freelancers all the time and, and, and they have a very clear perspective on, on how they feel the industry is going. But as somebody that's trying to grow a publication in the year 2023, which is a, a shared madness that all three of us have, <laughs> how do you feel? Like, how are you feeling about the state of horror journalism, the state of, of, of film journalism and the state of horror kind of in general? I think um, it's a weird one because I don't know if if you guys get this a lot over there, but um, like a lot of the big like sort of newspapers definitely over here write things about horror films and it feels like they give the assignments to someone who's never watched a horror film in their life and then they they basically like yeah just come out and write this absolutely like kind of scathing piece of um journalism like calling the whole genre rubbish because they watch like one film and things i think it feels quite challenging because it's 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 such a big like genre and it's super exciting but i feel like um the people who are super passionate about horror and we sort of a lot of us just write about it like on the side alongside our day jobs like don't get those opportunities and then people who clearly have no love for the genre get to write about it and rather than sort of potentially bringing loads of new people to it they're sort of turning them off and going on the yeah because they don't have a, a a personal love for it they clearly obviously like film if they're writing about it but they don't have that same thing about horror so it sometimes feels um yeah it feels like a bit of a challenging one that feels like there's loads of people out there who write about horror and love horror like all over the world but it, a lot of the sort of big exposure stuff sometimes feels like it's 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 not like it's not getting the love it deserves I guess because it's not getting necessarily the best kind of people to write about it so I feel like going to sites like ours like yours like smaller ones and things I mean obviously bigger horror focused ones like bloody disgusting and things are good as well I just like to get that level of horror love that you want rather than looking for the, the in the normal kind of places because chances are it's not going to be um kind of what you're looking for as a as a horror fan so i think we're quite lucky that there's so many people out there who um do it as uh, either if either as a job or kind of like as a, a thing on the side like like we do um of uh yeah showing their appreciation for it i think it's um I've only really had like really nice experiences as well with the sort of horror community. The only thing I ever get that annoys me is when I obviously I write a lot of lists 
whenever I put a list up, someone's like, you forgot this, like the most mm. basic bitch. I, like I did a TikTok that was like, some, here's some folk horror films. And it was all ones that I like, owned on Blu-ray. And someone was like, what about The Wicker Man? And I was like, well, obviously The Wicker Man. Yeah, okay. But also I don't own that on DVD. So that's why it's not in the TikTok. But um, <laughs> that's the only thing that annoys is people feel the need to um, like correct me on my list opinion. <laughs> so I'm like, no, it's my, it's my terrible list about my terrible choices. Like leave me alone. Um, but yeah, I've only really had... Um, nice experiences and it's amazing to just kind of discover all these people I think especially on ghouls there's a lot of really like interesting like um in-depth essays and I know like Molly writes the uterus uh, horror column for you guys which is like absolutely amazing right up my street anything like period related in horror films is like amazing and anything like fully kind of female experience is brilliant so um yeah you just you sort of have to seek out the places where the the, the people are writing the, the amazing stuff and you sort of connect with all these these brilliant people um online so yeah I think we could do a bit better over here definitely of sort of having a better mainstream representation I guess of horror stuff of horror journalism stuff but I, I do think that there's a lot of like amazing stuff um going on I think just maybe yeah give some people <laughs> take take the back seat when it comes to talking about horror and give some other yeah. people the chance to kind of share the love on it would be a bit a bit nicer it's it's the joke of every October waiting for the Vanity Fairs or the Varieties or whatever major yeah. publication to write that article. Hey, horror's back. Like, mm-hmm. all right, bitch, it never yeah. went away. Get out of here. Yeah, not, no more articles about elevated horror, please. Write right about some, something else. What you, we're <laughs> we're on to trauma horror. What do you mean? We got a we got a TM <laughs> trademark trauma horror. <laughs> well, no more articles about uh, elevated horror is the one thing that I know we all agree on. So that feels like a really good place to end the first half of our discussion, because when we uh, when we come back, we got to talk about one of those uterus horror type horror films, right? We got to talk about one of those coming of age um, intergenerational trauma horror films that I think folks will have a really fun time with. So when we come back, we're going to talk about Urban Legends, Bloody Mary. Hey everyone, thank you so much for supporting this episode of Certified Forgotten. I want to remind you that if you would like to find new ways to support both the podcast and our website, certifiedforgotten.com, we do have a Patreon, and I'm going to recommend our three most popular tiers. For only a dollar a month, you can be a website supporter. We appreciate you. You help support everything that we do, help provide cutting-edge film criticism on the topic of horror, For $3 a month, you will get a monthly video recommendation from myself and my colleague, partner in crime and friend, Matt Donato, walking you through some of the new-to-us horror, including films, books, and games. And for $6 a month, you get not only the video recommendations, you also get one exclusive article a month for Patreon followers only, where I grapple with a movie of Donato's choosing. He puts me through the ringer, we call the column Film School from Hell, and he picks a lot of horror that I would not otherwise watch. So even though it is my writing, I promise you that Donato's presence can be felt throughout. So if you would like to check out those or any of our other Patreon tiers, you can visit us at patreon.com slash certified forgotten. We appreciate your support. And now back to the show. Welcome back. So the film that Kim has brought for us today is Urban Legends Bloody Mary. This is the third film in the Urban Legends series, I guess trilogy technically you could call it, and the only way to receive, or the only one to receive a direct-to-video release. The film was written by Michael Doherty and directed by Mary Lambert, and it follows high school student Sam Owens, played by Kate Mara, but look quickly and you'll see her sister in the movie too, 
the victim of a vicious prank by the high school football team. But when the players who pulled the prank start mysteriously ending up dead, Sam discovers that their small Utah town is repeating a decades-old cycle of violence, and that the original victim, a high school girl named Mary Banner, may have returned from the dead to exact her revenge. Uh, Kim, as always, we're going to start with you. You have a list uh, actually pinned to your Twitter profile of (laughs) movies that you will talk about anywhere, anytime for any reason. Uh, And this is one of the films on that list. Mm So normally we say, Hey, why do you, uh, why do you bring this movie to us? You've, you've, you've tweeted it. The proof is right there. We know why you brought this movie to us, but what is it about it that you love so much? So I, uh, when I was like a teenager or I guess younger because Urban Legends came out in like 1997 I think I was a huge fan of the first two I had them on DVD I used to watch them all the time I went to uni and did like a half film degree so I used to watch Urban Legend Final Cut like on repeat and be like I'm gonna be as cool as these guys um, and I didn't see the third one until um, maybe like five six years ago I'm not sure I'd sort of heard um, it didn't have the best reputation and even the cover art of the DVD <laughs> even the title screen of the film is like oh man this looks like it's gonna be terrible but um I my favorite Stephen King thing ever 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 is Pet Cemetery. um and Mary Lambert directed one and two and I think when I realized that she directed three I was like all right okay I actually have some faith in this one now I should watch it so I had to hunt the DVD down like secondhand and watch it and um there's no argument that some of the effects are terrible in it, but I feel like um, I'm a huge fan of the Rage Carry too. I watched that when I was like a teenager. It was like the perfect kind of new metal-y like horror film that exact age when I was a teenager. It was, it was perfect, and I feel like it's quite similar to that where people sort of write it off for being bad because um, it's it's not like it's obviously a sequels to more popular films and it has some like terrible kind of effects in it. But I think there's sort of it has this kind of deeper message of um like not being quite a rape revenge film but definitely like in that sort of wheelhouse of female raged revenge of this thing that has happened um and i think yeah i I just feel like it maybe gets written off a little bit because of (laughs) really bad cgi spiders and people being like why would you make a supernatural urban legend but it actually has a really um interesting story and um yeah i think for that reason it's it's it feels like an amazing sequel that just gets a lot of a lot of unwarranted hate i feel because yeah it doesn't <laughs> yeah that title screen i forgot how bad it was until i was watching it again but yeah it's just um i feel like it has a really important kind of story and um the way they sort of delve into the connections between what's happened to sam and what happened to mary and just everything sort of repeating itself which just like hits home a lot it just makes a lot of sense so yeah i feel like it's just I just I just want to like fight people. I've been like, it's fine if you don't like it, if you've really watched it, but if you just heard that it's got bad effects, then please like actually just just watch it and see what you see what you think. <laughs> Donato, I want to ask, is is this something that has come up for you before? Because I know you you dive into remakes an awful lot. Was this a first time watch for you? Well, I mean, like, no, this was a first time watch. Like this definitely I had seen the first Urban Legend. I still haven't seen Final Cut either. So huh. this was very much a second viewing in the trilogy i guess i could say (laughs) so uh, so still missing on the middle but uh yeah yeah, i mean like that that whole 2000 era that was still when i was avoiding horror very much like that was still when i really wasn't into it and i shouldn't say avoiding i was coming into it you know early 2000s but still just way as an outsider so a, a straight to vod sequel again to call up those 
marketing images are very, very not good. There's some Photoshop ass high school class first time I've ever used it, um, you know, marketing. But at the same time, like it, it does have way more of a message for 2005, I think, especially when you think about when it was released. I mean, the opening of this film is so very, well, I shouldn't say the opening. I think the first like, you know, 20 minutes are so very upfront about like, no, we're going to tell a story about how like women are the victims here and like men are in a society that's completely patriarchal. Like they just, maybe it's because it's not subtle at all that people kind of like look at it that way. But I don't know. I'm kind of of the camp that like, yeah, we're beyond subtlety at this point for a lot of messages because the movie itself, as you just brought up, Kim, like it is about history repeating itself. It is about the gorilla imagery and hearing the teacher talk about how (laughs) alpha males dominate society and also how in the beginning Kate Mara's character would definitely have a date to the dance if she wasn't such an outspoken feminist. But like, you know, they're doing that purposely. It's not a thing of like, oh, we're going to, you know, throw this in your face and preach about it. Like, no, we're doing this because it's 2023 and we're still having movies with the same theme because since 2005, has anything really gotten better? And it's interesting to me because the, you know, you would talk about special effects and the direct-to-video-ness of the film but this sits at a really interesting point in sort of film distribution history, I think, because I, I, I wanted to look it up to make sure that I, I had the date right on that. Netflix is a streaming service launched in January in 2007. This movie launched or was released on video in July 2005, which makes it one of the last sort of in that tail end of pre-streaming direct-to-video releases when that was still the dominant <laughs> channel for this. And so watching the movie, it was the first time watch for me as well, it's doing a lot of things that I think it, 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 it sits sort of at the intersection of a couple of different periods in film history, which I think is really interesting. Yes, it has what we would think of as a little bit of like the hallmarky, you know, editing to move it from like plot point to plot point to plot point, kind of a, a disjointed, you know, speed that it moves through the first couple of scenes, especially in present day. Um, the special effects are direct to video budget caliber, but it's also recognizing, I think, and Kim, this goes to exactly what you're saying, Donato, I agree with you. It's recognizing that horror can be a message medium. And so a lot of what it has to say and how it works that into it feels very contemporary. That feels like you know a film that would have been released a few years later and feels right in line with a lot of, of modern horror. So it's a fascinating thing to kind of watch because you can kind of see... You know, if you think of the weird thing that popped to mind for me is that like that famous image of the evolution of man, right? Going from like fish to human, like you can locate it on that and be like, oh, this is where the horror genre went from like the write off, you know, direct to video thing to like streaming and home video and second tier distribution being a viable form for like memorable and genre defining horror. So it's, it's, it's as a historian, like the, the, college former college writer in me wants to be like oh, i can write a thousand essays about what this represents for a genre that was in transition yeah and i think um i think it fits quite well into the urban legend like um trilogy because the the first one's very much about like um the the killer like being raging and getting revenge on people who like wronged her the second one's not really about that at all but then the third one kind of takes it back to that um so i do think they fit quite well um together Mm -hmm. in that respect and i do like the fact that you know the first two films did a lot of urban legend based kills but they were sort of running out of i guess things that they could do 
realistically I think making this one supernatural sort of opens the door for them to just do whatever they wanted like it doesn't have to be something that a killer in a like big jacket with a hood could set up in 20 minutes and then run off screen it's it's something that like a ghost can do so I think it allowed them to do um a lot more kind of bananas kills that they wouldn't have been able to do in the other films and sort of expand the urban legend mythos like that way I do think the the kind of spider death scene the effects aren't great on those spiders but i also think that is one of the best death scenes like the whole is it's really brutal because she she peels like her entire face off and it's like gushing blood and there's like glass stuck in it and things i think um like had that just had better spiders like i think more people would probably be talking about how um good it was and how brutal it was and i mean they also have a get toasted in a um sunbed uh, seen everyone mm-hmm. loves the one from Final Destination 3 but no one's talking about the one in Urban Legend um, which is a shame because that's um, it's fun as well so yeah I think I like I like that they sort of brought it back to it's like kind of female revengey roots um, and yeah gave us sort of more um, wondrous urban legends that we wouldn't have got in the other films I think it sort of added um, something a bit extra with that it also feels very, uh, you know, people said this online too when I just posted about watching the film, but it feels very like Mary Lou, like the uh, prom night too. Yeah, oh, 100%. Uh, like the ties are all there where it's calling back to it. And it is funny you mentioning Final Destination because that my thought too, like half the kills in here, the, the bug face, you know, or sorry, mm-hmm. the, the spider face was done in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, yes. The tanning bed sequence was done in Final Destination, I'm sure, mm-hmm. plenty of other times, other places. But, you know, this isn't going to get talked about because, unfortunately, with the tanning bed, you see the after effects of, like, the completely charred and roasted corpse, which does all the work. Like, it, it's mm-hmm. gnarly. Um, but I guess, like, people might talk about Final Destination because that one is actually, you see more of it as it's happening, as it's blistering. Uh, and, yeah, the spider death scene, again, I will fully admit that those spiders do not look very real at all but when you go back to the one of scary stories to tell in the dark like those weren't real spiders either mm. those were computerized as well and like you know they were better but they were still the same thing so yeah like 100 percent. we the comparison points are all there to other kind of films and again like the, the mary loop uh plot lines and the parallels there like i think they're actually pretty good too the way they pull that off and you know you said like at the beginning you're like you know they made a supernatural uh like sequel like why go supernatural? But I think that falls in line with franchise filmmaking. You've done the thing where it's the killer who is just a human using urban legends to, as a guise mm-hmm. or as a cover up for their murders. When no, we're on the you know we're on the third film, we're on the sequel, we're we're Friday the Thirteenth where we do the carry, we're you know Friday the Thirteenth yeah. where he's now going to hell and stuff like that. Like that's how franchises work, and you want to switch things up. So I think it's refreshing to think the whole time it's going to be who we think it is. You know, they set it up pretty clearly, you know, Mm -hmm. we have another hooded cloaked killer, but no, like this straight up is the vengeance that is still so very due. Like it is such a cathartic uh, ending there when you get there. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's it is very similar to like um Promenade 2. There's there's no doubt it's a lot of the same kind of plot points. And I guess they did the same, like chucking in a supernatural sequel after a sort of normal one. But I think, um, prom night too can sort of portray Mary Lou a bit too villainous I guess for me they make her seem like they're like oh she's quite promiscuous at the start and that's why this happens even though we know he's the bad guy and then they make her seem like she's enjoying it a bit too much I think Urban Legends sort of takes the same kind of story and definitely frames it as yes these teenagers are getting brutally murdered but it's definitely their parents fault like it's nothing to do um with Mary which I don't 
necessarily agree with them having to make her like completely virginal at the start to get that point across um yeah. but i do sort of like that they yeah sort of take that aspect but very much like you're you're never like sort of not on mary's side and i think that's quite good the fact that they told us the story in the beginning because i guess if if sam had sort of had to work out what was going on along the way and then like halfway through we discovered what happened to mary we might have been um like kind of it might have been a bit more villainy portrayal halfway through but i think the fact that right up front we get this story of um what happened to her and her friends and then sort of see the the consequences that come from that she's never really uh, portrayed as as a bad guy it's more just using her undead powers to get her revenge rather than being um the bad guy it's very much kind of um focused on the the football team and all the sort of powerful popular adults in the town who just have like had nothing happen to them no repercussions at all even though like everyone in the school must have seen mary with those guys that night like they didn't even like remotely investigate what happened it's just sort of yeah this way that the the kind of perpetrators and you know one of them's a woman as well it's not all not all men <laughs> one of them, yeah and her daughter i think gets the worst death and i don't know i seem mm-hmm. it feels like um mary's friend grace as well seems most hateful towards like heather's mum for being involved in it it's like the sort of implication that if you if you are um perpetuating the patriarchy as a woman like you're even worse so she she gets the most graphic like prolonged um violent death which uh is a bit yeah a bit harsh but um yeah i sort of like the the fact that she's never sort of presented um as the bad guy she is just trying to get her story uncovered and build this connection with sam so that she can give her strong enough visions to know what actually happened to her and so that she can get sort of peace i guess maybe if she'd um found that peace a bit earlier she might not have turned to the murder but (laughs) this is sort of the path that she ended on because it's been like 35 years that she's sort of been just not forgotten about because the town clearly still talks about her enough if she's turned into this urban legend but just no one really cares enough to actually find out what happened to her they, they just want to like keep her as this like mystical thing in the background well yeah it's also the nightmare on elm street at all like it's the sins of our fathers that our children pay for whatever the exact mm-hmm. quote is uh and again i kind of like that where they're keeping mary lou as this mysterious being and keeping that urban legend buried but you know you find out they're doing that because once again the town is still being run by the same pieces of shit the history repeating itself go right back to the themes of the movie um and you know again like i think it's unfair to bash a movie for being unsubtle it it really just comes down to the story it wants to tell and it comes down to the fact that like i've written so many reviews at this point and absolutely there are times when i'm like cool this delivery doesn't work because it is completely bashing me over the head but it doesn't have the not like it doesn't have the intelligence to do what it's doing like Mm -hmm. you can keep bashing me over the head but it's when the it's simple and when it's not actually delving into anything, you're just telling me what I already know. Uh, and there are times when I'm like, cool, the subtlety here is what makes it like, like there are so many different ways to do that. Right. And I think this film, I think bloody Mary kind of, it does a decent, I'm not going to say it does an amazing job. Like I'm not going to say it's the best representation of it at all, but I think it yeah. does a decent job of being, in your face about something that is very you know topical that is still topical and you know it doesn't really give a damn to hide what it's saying and i mm-hmm. the way that it does it and the way that it pulls it off it it it, it works in in 
again, certain regards, don't expect a five out of five movie, but like (laughs) it does for us, again, for a 2005 straight to video film that got no promotion, I'm sure, and all that stuff, like it's telling a story that ain't worth getting pushed under a rug. And I want to ask Kim, because we, you know, film is a collaborative medium, but we have a lot of discussions um, as film critics and and as film lovers about the, the difference of who's directing, right? Mary Lambert, iconic um, filmmaker, cult icon within the horror community, Pet Cemetery has been working in and out of television as a lot of films to her name. She's kind of, especially with the re- the sequel or the remake of Pet Cemetery a few years ago, has sort of reemerged um, and sort of earned her spot uh, among the canon of like 80s and 90s horror filmmakers in mm-hmm. a way that I think everybody's really excited about. But I would love your perspective on on the difference for this story about sexual violence, about a culture of silence, all of these elements that we see a lot in horror films. And these are two male screenwriters that are tackling the material. Mm-hmm. We see these themes pop up a lot in horror. Is there a noticeable difference? Should audiences feel a difference in how that material is handled and what the gaze of the film is? Because it's Mary Lambert directing it and not, you know, somebody else um, trying to tackle this material. What do you think it makes a difference? I am... I mean, (laughs) it's always a weird sentence to say, but I am a big fan of like rape revenge films and things in general. I do think you can usually tell the difference when it's sort of directed by a woman versus directed by men. But then I also like love the original I Spit on Your Grave and things. I don't like have an issue with them. I just think sometimes the story can be told a little bit better. The, the, like you said, the sort of gaze of the, the victim a lot of the time and and a lot of the time the actual like assault scenes themselves, um, if it can be sort of filmed from, a different perspective is can sort of make or break the film really i think um i think mary lambert was a good choice for this one because i feel like um in the pet cemetery films they obviously are a horror and there's a lot of grotesque imagery but the sort of important message the whole time is this underlying thing of like grief um uh in the first one and even the second one which is a bit more like bonkers and <laughs> a lot more just kind of like body horror and like pus and <laughs> and stuff um there's still this 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 whole thing of the um the title character in that one sort of having lost his mother and having this sort of grief that runs that runs through him the whole time um and so i think even though this film um even though urban legend is sort of a bit about bonkers and kind of supernatural i i do think that it's thanks to mary lambert that the story feels like it's very focused on mary and sam's character and their connection and and sort of the um yeah the the similarities and what happened to them and it feels like um the way kind of Sam is dealing with her trauma and not having a lot of help from like her parents or like people's are avoiding her at school. Like parents are telling her that it was her fault. Like the police don't want to like investigate it. She and even her like two best friends that got kidnapped with her don't really want to seem like to be a part of it afterwards. It's only really her and her brother that are they're like, gone. Like halfway yeah. through the film, we just never they they kind of consciously peace out. It's not an accidental. It's not like <laughs> yeah. the screenwriters forgot. But they're sort of like, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna yeah. do this whole thing you're working on right they now. They don't want to be like they didn't really want to be involved in her whole like writing the story in the first place. So I guess they're kind of worried about their their like popularity. But I do feel. It feels like the same kind of thing. Like the remake of Pet Cemetery, I feel like missed that whole thing of the the underlying grief and the the like Rachel's relationship with death and and how her and like Lewis deal with it differently. And the I think that they they missed that. So even though it's very obvious in the Stephen King story, I feel like it, it's dependent on who's handling it, the way that it comes across. Whereas I feel like in the original Pet Cemetery film, that is always like there, um, the way that Lewis and and um, 
Rachel are kind of struggling with that grief and so I feel like Mary Lambert did a similarly good job of sort of keeping that front and center like yeah never making Mary the villain always sort of investigating what happened to her like Sam is obviously getting haunted by this <laughs> scary looking thing that like Mary doesn't have the best like I'm a dead person makeup but she's meant to look scary um, and even Sam's not really that freaked out she's like oh my god there's just there's something happening with this person like we need to figure out what it is why these people are dying like it's it's all very focused on their sort of shared trauma and this sort of similar experience that a lot of people have gone through and sort of yeah painting the rest of the town as the bad guys so I, I feel like in other hands it could have been come across like very just like supernatural slashery and and not really focused on that as much and yeah maybe it kind of made Mary come across as the bad guy or make out like she, like she was scaring Sam or whatever and Sam was kind of being scared and helping her whereas it feels very much like Sam is helping her because she recognizes that like some injustice has happened and she needs to save her and I think that's nice so yeah I do think that um in other hands it might have not come across um as well as it did yeah I bet uh, you're right it's not the, the the like a five-star representation but I do feel like like when I watched Carrie when I was a teenager um I didn't get a lot of the sort of um rape revenge sort of uh jock culture boys will be boys kind of element of it um and now when I watch that when I'm older I sort of get a lot of that and I feel like um you maybe do sometimes need these sort of simple representations of those more complicated issues to get them across to like <laughs> younger women like me the new black christmas from 2019 sort of did the same um kind of thing of just bringing that kind of yeah that kind of like culture like into the thing it doesn't have to be this like complicated representation that like that some horror films go for you can just go for a, a simple one and tell that story and address it because i bet there's loads of people who know guys like that at high school or people who are their friends currently and maybe seeing it like on film like that they'll be like oh shit actually <laughs> are we the baddies yeah. yeah it turns out we are so um i think that can be a good thing it doesn't always need to be some clever um horror allegory kind of thing it could just be straight in your face and kind of paint it so i think yeah i think mary lambert did a very good job of that i think um she probably i saw some reviews on letterbox and i was looking at it because i think my like three and a half star rating is like the highest <laughs> that it has and um, people were like oh my god what was mary lambert doing and i was like no you know what i think she was a great choice she knows how to kind of handle that kind of sensitive topic and still make it a horror film um and yeah maybe if she just had a bit more budget for effects and stuff it would have been people would have liked it a bit more um I don't think there's anything wrong with the the plot or the or anything like that I just think yeah it's maybe just it's maybe just the connection to the rest of the series it gets kind of looked down on but yeah I think she did a a great job I think she's good at sort of looking at the underlying message of things and making sure that that's kind of present in every scene the weaving its way through the the whole film and not just something that's kind of tacked on at the end mm -hmm. Yeah, because like the spiders are not her fault. The ending with whatever kind of witchy, uh, yeah, weird holographic imagery are going on, <laughs> not her fault. Like the yeah. visual effects are what they are because, again, this is a straight to video movie mm -hmm. in a time when straight to video movies were not given the same time of day. So, like, you know, the movie you're making with the money you're making. So, you do bring up exactly what you said, Kim, like the filmmaker who can keep the emotional core there who can keep the themes and the storytelling there and work around the fact that like, listen, we're going to do what we can for these kill sequences. We're going to do what we can for the supernatural sequences. But you know, what, 
what can we really do? And I mean, like, we're also kind of leaving out that this is co-written by Michael Doherty from Trick or Treat and stuff like that. So, like, you have Michael Doherty's name on the screenplay. You have Mary Lambert as a filmmaker starring Kate Mara, a very obviously young Kate Mara, who's, like, not as well known at the time. But, like, all the kind of pieces are here. It's like they did put care into, like, trying mm-hmm. to make the best film they could. It's just an unfortunate thing that sometimes, you know, you are a slave to the budget. You're a slave to what you can do. But I, I like to think that they brought all those people in and, you know, put this movie together because they, again, they didn't want to just churn something out. Like they brought everyone together to be like, all right, here's the deal. Here's what, here's what you can do and what you can get away with. Go forth and we trust you as a creative team. So, yeah, really, a really interesting scenario just like across the board. And Donato, you, you listed a bunch of names. Um but there was one name you didn't list, which I think is I, before we talk, before we wrap the episode, I want to talk a little bit about Tina Lifford is Grace Taylor, uh, because I, there's a thing and I, I'm sure both of you sort of experienced it. There are a lot of times when I watch horror, especially or, older horror, I find myself connecting to a film intellectually, right? I'm like thinking about its place in history, you know, thinking about where the culture was at. And a lot of that stuff is like happening. So I'll, I can enjoy a movie and not actually like emotionally enjoy a movie and be like, oh, this is really interesting. From the moment that Grace Taylor came on the screen, the adult version of Grace Taylor came on the screen, I was I was in completely in the bag for this film for the rest of it because one, you know, she opens the door, the first line that that uh Loth Taylor or sorry, Tina Lifford delivers is power to the people, free Angela Davis, what's happening? That's our introduction <laughs> to the character. But it's also, you know, a lot of these a lot of these movies present there's always whenever you do like these like before and after type horror stories, right? there's always somebody who serves as the storyteller, the person that was alive then and comes and they're always the same kind of like craggy old. And they kind of set that up a little bit with the coach, like this craggy old, like, you know, scary looking white male who's like, Oh, you didn't know this happened. And instead we've got like this, this, you know, pothead hippie who's delightful (laughs) and is telling the story, you know, passing along this information in a way that I've never seen before. So before we kind of wrap and talk about the impact of the film, I want to ask both of you, like, are, are you with me on Grace Taylor? Were you feeling Grace Taylor the way that I was in this movie? Yeah, I thought she was, I thought she was great. Like, um, I, I do think it was a, a good idea to sort of have her come back and it, it sort of told like a different angle of the trauma as well, obviously, because she, um, I'm never quite sure if she actually remembered who was involved or if she was just saying that she couldn't remember, but it was clearly, you know, this is what the football team had done to them when they were just, they're being the slightly weird girls at high school like what were they going to do if they actually like accused them of killing their pal like she just didn't want to be a part of that but she obviously did want to help mary so it was a very like um like interested conflicted um representation of yeah this different kind of trauma where she actually got drugged and dumped in the woods and but survived so it was it was a totally different story angle and i liked the whole element of her and sam kind of teaming up at the end to take down Mm -hmm the one like remaining guy who had kind of done all this because the other friend of Mary and Grace had um, died sort of in between um, that time. So it was just kind of her and Sam left to kind of fight that battle. So um, it was really interesting. And I guess they sort of used her as a vehicle to sort of get, I'm not, was she so obsessed with Urban Legends just because Mary was like visiting her? Or did she just like them anyway? Because <laughs> there was so much like, yeah. or, and she obviously got the sort of reference that connected back to Urban Legends too, to sort of be like, yes, this does take place in the same universe. This world is just, there's a lot of Urban Legend deaths happening in this world. But um, so yeah, I think that, I think she was, it was definitely a lot more interesting to use her rather than 
like having the it seemed like the coach might of like turn into a good guy at some point uh or a bit like kind of prom night too where he was a bit scared and he'd be like oh i'll come forward but then it turned out he was the worst because he gave the football team the idea oh by the way me and my pals when we were younger we like drugged these women and took like you should do that <laughs> like get your revenge like he was as bad um so it was yeah it was nice to to use use her um as well and sort of make her part of the scooby gang at the end for the the final fight yeah, it, it continues the theme. It continues everything that's going on here. And once again, goes back to the fact that like, this is thought out, whatever you're seeing mm. visually on screen, I, again, you can have your comments on totally understandable. But what is there in storytelling What is there in what is wanting to be represented? That is, once again, what everyone was focused on. So when you have a character, again, like, like Grace is having Sorry, like the actress is having a lot of fun playing Grace. Like yes. obviously, like there is the, the hippie element, the pot smoking element, like all all that, whatever you want to get into <laughs> it, like it's there. But it's also once again not that same Brian Cox, Vincent D'Onofrio kind of character who is gonna tell you some things and then kick you out of his house or something like yep. that. Like yep. this is fun having her go on that ride. And again, like having someone stand with Sam and you have the two generational thing. You have Mm -hmm. someone who's went through it and someone who's going through it again. And there is power to the fact that like they team up to be like, nah, we're done with this shit. Like this has to end. And fuck you, Ed Marino. (laughs) Yeah. And if we're going to if we're going to ding the film for some of the special effects that don't work, then we got to give credit for all of the set design um, in Grace's house, especially the set design for the artwork and the urban, like the, the mm-hmm. urban red legends, uh, Charlie day pin board that she's got going on in that room, because that, that is, is, there is a lot of care that went into that artwork and there's mm-hmm. a lot of care that went into setting that up. And I think that that, those little touches are where you recognize the difference between it was never going to happen. And there were odd, like you watch a lot of horror films, they don't have anything. And you're like, there was never going to be stuff here for me to sink my teeth into. You watch that. You're like, Oh, it was just a, like you said, Donato, just a budget thing. There's, there were a couple of obstacles that kept it from getting to that next level, but the vision is there. The artistry is there for sure. Well, the last question, uh, Kim, that we always ask our guests then is how does this film become unforgotten? How does it find its its audience? And I think this movie has a few things going for it. It's tacked onto a major franchise. <laughs> it has a handful, Doherty, Lambert, the Maras. You know, it has some names that, that are higher profile than what we usually typically watch, mm-hmm. but I want your thoughts on on where you think the future of this movie is going to be in the the two thousands horror canon that we still haven't gotten around to developing yet. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it definitely felt a bit forgotten for me. Like I said, I was a huge fan of the first two, and I just sort of missed. I don't even know if I knew this one definitely existed uh, for a while. So I'm definitely part of <laughs> part of the problem, just discovering it myself. But I do think, like. Um, pitching it I guess more as like a kind of feminist <laughs> fight the patriarchy kind of horror film and just um recognizing that it does have its flaws it isn't um perfect but I also think as horror fans we're usually quite forgiven of that in general like there's some amazing films out there that didn't like have the budget or were released at the wrong time and just haven't quite hit the mark but you can you can recognize the the sort of story and what they were going for and I think this is definitely one of those examples so I think um I mean there are supernatural sequels that have come out that aren't very great like the last I know we did last summer film was just a bit <laughs> a bit weird um but this one um yeah you can I feel that you can tell that they cared and I think like the, it can be very easy to just churn out sequels for horror films as sort of a, a cash grab kind of thing I feel like 
portraying this one as one that they one cared about adding to the the sort of urban legend world and and two cared about telling a story that wasn't just a kind of straight up like look at all these teenagers die thing it was a yeah it had a lot of a, a deeper meaning to it and i do um yeah we were talking about films i can't wait to show my daughter i can't wait to start showing her like feminist kick-ass women kind of horror films to just sort of prove you know a lot of horror is just a lot of women getting like horribly murdered and horrible things done to them by men it's nice to see the ones where um they sort of group together and get the chance to like just kind of start fighting back right from the start and she's um sam's sort of trying to weed out everything that happened in the town like right from the beginning and like before the horror even starts she's like tackling the football team and the sort of general shitness of high school and we don't really have that whole like sports emphasis over here in scotland as much but um high school is still terrible and (laughs) teenage boys particularly were super nice to the the weirdo looking girls so um yeah i think it's just sort of trying to clear people's preconceptions about what a direct-to-video what seven years later <laughs> urban legend sequel would be and sort of um have a look at the story i do say that though i have seen the letterbox reviews of people who've watched it and are just like ah i hate this and that's that's fair enough but i do think um yeah probably people um like i was in the start who have just sort of looked at the dvd cover art and gone oh man that looks questionable i would suggest yeah just actually watching it and um I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's great. I don't even think it's not even got bad acting or anything like Kate Mara and that are mm. great in it. It's just like, it has a lot going for it compared to like other stuff that I've watched that's quite beloved for being like a terrible film. I would love to see this kind of get that, that status of like, oh, it's got some things wrong with it, but it is like good. And I think it's, yeah, it's got a bit of a, a deeper story and some cool death scenes, which is just what you want in horror, a combo of the two. <laughs> Don't have anything to add? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, like, think about how you can bring it into the contemporary and how you can really get people looking at it. it. Honestly, if you do pair it with Mary Lou, like if you do a double feature of pairing with Prom Night 2 and then immediately playing uh, Bloody Mary, it, whether it's Joe Bob doing it on you know his show or somebody just doing it in a theater somewhere, I think that's mm-hmm. how you reignite the conversation around it and because again like you have just said the conversation around this film is largely fuck this so like i i don't <laughs> want to watch this it's bad blah 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 so i i think it once you get away from the general horror consensus though and the general horror not to say it in a negative but like the general horror fan because they are going in there going all i want is kills all i want is this all i want is that like a certain level of horror fan i'm not saying all i'm not saying that's what it is but, you know, for a lot of the more outspoken ones, that that is what they're looking for. And this movie will not give you what you want in those degrees if that's all you want. But for all the reasons we've talked about, for all the reasons that people are now going into horror movies and looking for things beyond the gore, and beyond the visual, uh, I think this is pretty primed to be rediscovered in certain ways. And once again, I'm not saying that means it's perfect and has to work for you, but... I think if you play it back to back with something like Prom Night 2, Mary, uh, you know, Mary Lou, it, it does compare and contrast. It does both of them because Kim, you said before how it doesn't do everything that Mary Lou does. And, you know, to show them together and to kind of show the two ways that you can go about this, you know, cathartic vengeance, we'll say, I, I think it's a pretty nice little double bill that will give it more attention. So something of that nature, but uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be hard pressed to find a re-release or anything like that that is worthy (laughs) of a boutique label or something. 
Hey, if they ever do it, though, I'm available to write essays about it. Like- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Mary, if you're listening, Kim <laughs> needs to be your first phone call. Oh, yeah. I uh, I wrote an article once about like Pet Service 1 and 2, and I put it on Twitter, and Mary Lambert retweeted it, and that was like the highlight of my yeah. life. I don't think I could get any higher than that. So maybe if I just like slid into her DMs, <laughs> she would at least know who it was. <laughs> just, just put it put it there. Be like, yeah. you know, just, this, is for, this is for you, an entire podcast episode <laughs> yeah. on Bloody Mary. <laughs> well, Kim, it was great to have you on the show today, um, and we want to give you a chance to talk about where to find your writing or the things that, that you're working on. So this is your window. If folks want to learn more, if they want to follow your work at, at Ghouls and Elsewhere, what's the best place to connect with you online? Um, yeah, so I'm on um, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at WickedSister69 because I picked my handle when I was 15 and I haven't changed it. Um, I'm also on TikTok at Little Red Hotter. But yeah, I write for Ghouls. I write at least monthly. I do my mother and horrors um, yeah, column. Um, and yeah, I also write a bunch of kind of lists and stuff for them. And then I also have my own blog, which is Little Red Horror, um, where I just write either lists or sort of big... Uh, sprawling retrospective pieces that I don't have to worry about anyone else editing the word count. Um, I just did one about like Mia and Cheryl in Evil Dead and the Evil Dead sort of comparing them and then I just did a list of like top camera related moments in horror films Um, so yeah that kind of stuff if that's your bag those are the two sort of main places but yeah if you follow me on Twitter if I'm ever anywhere else I tweet about it uh, constantly so that'd be the best place to find my stuff. That's great. Donato? How do folks connect with you and what you're working on? Uh, same spiel as always. You can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Blue Sky. I fuck around on the TikToks. I say it every time. Follow me there, but it's nothing special. And yeah, I just got more writing coming out the wazoo. I had nothing to nothing really call out. Just lots of festivals on the horizon. Your Fantasias are, depending on when this posts, I'm probably posting some Fantasia stuff. Fantastic coming up. And yeah, just your slew of regular uh, reviews and IGN slash film bloody blah, blah, blah. Busy time of year for us horror fans. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me at Blue Sky, Monogle at bluesky.app or whatever the hell that super long thing is. I hope they change that someday. Um, and that's pretty much it. If you Google me, you'll find me. I have a good SEO name and I'm grateful to my parents for that. But I would encourage you also to go check out certifiedforgotten.com because am, am I correct in remembering that this may not be the only Bloody Mary content that we are getting from Kim in the foreseeable future? Is that is that I, I feel like that's correct. Well, by it? the time by the time this posts, because we were talking in the past and this is the future, uh, <laughs> there is something already on certifiedforgotten.com. I unless we have fucked up tremendously. We gotta yeah, we gotta figure this out. Like it, it has already happened. And if it hasn't happened, then forget forget we said anything. It'll definitely <laughs> happen in the future. But you'll get more. If this was not enough, you'll get more as well. So we're excited to be able to run that soon or to have run that already, you know, whatever, whichever it is. Uh, Again, Kim, we just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. And we are going to sign off as we normally do with Donata doing something weird. 